This, this is the Second Second Story Podcast. Welcome back to the Second Story Podcast. I'm Max Spitz. The turmoil of the past several years has brought mental health conversations into new light. Discussions of how to avoid isolation and cabin fever invariably turned to students. How do we keep kids mentally healthy when, in order to keep them physically healthy, they have to be away from the greatest social stimulus, school? In this week's story, Teller Abra Millman shares just a few moments from her life as a teacher, recording how crucial it is to be there for her students, even when she can't physically be there. Recorded live at Pennyville Bar Car in Chicago in April 2022, Second Story is proud to present The Hulk and Olivia. instilled the absolute tenet of fake it until you make it. You've got to put on that flair and upsell, whether it's the new bourbon steak on a stick or Lord of the Flies. The fancy white table uh, cloth restaurant taught me that the angry white woman um, yelling about the bread basket and the angry white mom angry about her son's mediocrity will always be angry and will never be satisfied. <laughs> Sorry. And the, and the 24-7, okay. And the 24-7 uh, diner taught me that everyone deserves a place to sit and be warm and feel safe and never be judged. My first year teaching high school in the Chicago suburbs, the homecoming theme was superheroes and villains. The Friday of that week was the culminating event with an all-school themed dress-up day. I was teaching the crucible at that time in my junior English class and was feeling especially clever about my decision to dress as Abigail Williams, the ultimate Puritan mean girl in Arthur Miller's play about the Salem witch trials. I love a look. So I consulted the theater department and was able to secure a legit pilgrimy looking fit. The petticoat and the bonnet really sold it. That Friday, I paired my outfit with my lesson plan, a game that involved debating which characters were villains and which were heroes. I displayed character profiles on the front screen and recalled two volunteers up to debate. The winner received hot Cheetos. It was a rousing competition. And there was one character 
or one student dressed as the Hulk, who was the center of excitement. The Hulk was really playing up his rage and anger as he furiously condemned Elizabeth Proctor to death and ferociously ripped open his hot Cheetos with his teeth. After class was dismissed, Batman and Robin dubiously approached me with some pressing information. The Hulk was drunk. My stomach pitted as I watched the green shadow of my inebriated student disappear into the blur of passing period. I put together the Hulk's Gatorade water bottle being passed around, the unbridled enthusiasm while sentencing fictional women to death, the commitment to staying in character, the tearing of the t-shirt. I was a first year teacher, but I immediately understood the very real consequences of sending a 15 year old drunk Hulk into the halls of our high school. This was serious. I was responsible. I had to find him fast. So I froggered my Puritan ass through the passing period and was able to locate the Hulk in the bathroom sick but unharmed by the time of the bell. After I turned the Hulk in, I waited for my trial and sentence. As a teacher, I am also a mandated reporter, and I knew that I was responsible for the wild turkey, even if I wasn't the one who filled the water bottle. I was an unknowing witness to its abuse and harm to a child under my supervision, so I was not surprised when later that day I was summoned to the front office to meet with the Hulk's parents. When I entered the conference room, I saw the Hulk, the Hulk's parents, and our three deans who are all dressed up in leotards and capes and calling themselves the Dean Team. The air in the room was thick with tension and the damning stink of cheap whiskey. The dean dressed in orange lycra was the first to see me <laughs> was the first to see me enter the room and her eyes immediately narrowed as she gestured for me to take a seat at the head of the table. The other two deans stopped their typing on their laptops and the parents turned to me. But the Hulk he was despondent. He left his head and his hands slightly rocking back and forth. As I made my way to my seat, I was mortified by the cacophony of noise my rustling petticoat made. Who's that? The Hulk's father was wearing wire rim glasses that were too tight. He looked me up and down. What the fuck is going on in this school? <laughs> he demanded. My body snapped and stiffened. Everyone was looking at me for an answer, expected me to have an answer. The deans began their spin. The student handbook was referenced as everyone was looking for a place for the blame to land. As they talked, I had an epiphany. Fuck, I'm an adult too. 
it flooded over me. I'm not a kid visiting the adult's table for a scolding, I realized. I'm a 23-year-old adult desperately clinging to the kid's table. While I had thoroughly enjoyed the privileges of adulthood, drinking, scratch-off tickets, and voting, I was firmly opposed to adulting. I did not pay parking tickets. I considered a, a Snickers bar and a Parliament Light cigarette a balanced breakfast. I had even refused a houseplant as a gift because I just wasn't ready. As I sat as still as I could, trying to figure out my place, my responsibility, my role in this ridiculous caricature, I watched the Hulk. His green face paint was smeared and a very real green was starting to color his, his cheeks. Why was the water bottle pulled out in my class and not biology? Well, because everyone knows Miss Downen can sniff bullshit from two days ago. Up to that point, my discipline standard had been more of a slogan to be cool rather than a list of don'ts. I wanted to be liked. Seeing the look of distress on the Hulk's parents' faces solidified something for me. I saw the water bottle being passed. I watched the Hulk get sloppy. I might have even suspected something was up on some unconscious level. After all, I had waited tables at John Barleycorn. <laughs> I know that right. But I pushed that away. I had chosen to be cool, or as cool as you can be in a bonnet. I have now been teaching for 17 years, and I can honestly say that I love teenagers. I'm the type of teacher who pays attention to who you sit with at lunch. I stand at my door every passing period and notes who walks together, who comes from where, who is wearing what, and who is holding hands. Remote teaching during the 2020 school year was a stale and static experience. Staring at the name black boxes on my computer screen gives me none of that buzz. I yearned for the chaos as I stare into the echo of my job that I miss but don't recognize. Every day, every class, I take attendance using a mood meter. Students rate their moods from one to 10, one being the pits and 10 being the cheers. I continued this method in remote teaching because it was my only finger on their pulse. I had no other clues or signs or breadcrumbs to follow, only a number. One May morning, a girl I'll call Olivia, and of course, that is not her real name, who regularly clocks at a four or a five, dropped to a negative two in the mood meter chat thread. In real school, I would ask the student to sit with me outside of the class and try and investigate her feelings. The remote school version of that is a breakout room. When I open the tab, her camera flickers on. An odd remote school, a remote teacher trick that I learned was to firmly ask, but not require, the cameras to be pointed on either the top of a student's head, an object, or the ceiling. In Olivia's room, I can see only warm fairy lights twinkle 
strung on the backdrop of my screen, and an emerald ceramic lamp in the corner on the bedside table. I talk to the lamp with gentle questions. I am so sorry you're having a negative number kind of day. Do you want to talk about anything? Is there anything that you think I should know? I don't want to be alive anymore, is what I hear. I want to be unalive. Everything swelled and contracted all at once. I felt like I was stuck inside of an accordion. I wanted to reach to the screen and take her hand and walk her to our amazing counseling office in our school with all the lamps and pillows, but I couldn't. I put my face very close to the screen and told Olivia what I wanted to do, and then I did what I had to do. I had to keep this very scared and sad 15-year-old on the call. I had to reassure that everything was okay when everything was not okay. I had to lie. I had to tell her I wouldn't tell her parents. I had to reassure her that her secret was safe with me. Since I couldn't hold her hand, and since she could end the call any minute and essentially disappear in an instant, I had to be really uncool, and I had to snitch. I opened another tab and sent urgent emails. I sent texts to the counselor who used to be down the hall from my classroom. Everyone felt so far away, so disconnected. But we all snapped our shit together, and I kept Olivia on the call. Our social worker contacted the police, who then had to reach the sheriff, who then had to reach an ambulance, who then arrived at Olivia's house while I was still in the breakout room with her. I cried with her. I cried for her. Olivia described how COVID had carved out her life. She was so sad and so alone. I wanted to give her lifesavers and Jolly Ranchers, fill her void with hard candy. Suddenly, Olivia's mom burst into the room and the call was cut. And Google Meets was asking me to rate my meeting. Yeah, shitty. Just like that, black screen, not even a named, block, named box, nothing. Olivia was assessed and deemed a danger to herself. She was hospitalized. She was safe. She was mad, so mad. I had lied and was very uncool. There was another meeting with the deans. This time there was no principal office or leotards just a screen of tiled faces and people in their pajama pants. As the dean and counselor debriefed, I watched Olivia's mom's face. The worry was stretched taut, and her mouth was pulled into a thin line. 
It looked like she was holding in the weight of the world. Her backdrop was a very cluttered kitchen and a glitching overhead light with a fan that orbited off center. She was unhappy, the authorities were called. She was not convinced her daughter was serious. She called me dramatic. She accused me of overstepping. Just as I had with the Hulk, I had to absorb her anger. That was the cost. I was not liked. I was not cool, but I was an adult. Two years later, on another spring morning, I was pacing rows of our main gymnasium that were set up with folding tables for annual state testing. In my best proctor posture, I quietly checked over shoulders and handed out extra tissues and pencils. I <clears throat> then suddenly, I find myself reading Olivia's name tag on her desk. Her back is to me. She is hunched over her newsprint testing pamphlet and she is sketching out an equation that looks like hieroglyphics. She's here. She's safe. She's doing math. Super gross. But still, I take a very deep breath and walk by her desk, briefly tapping my finger on her name, Olivia. This story was produced by Ali Drum and Vic Winter, curated by Julie Ganey, and directed by Lexi Saunders, with music and sound design by Michael Benedict. The Second Story podcast is produced by Max Spitz. Second Story is located in the traditional homelands of the Council of the Three Fires, the Odawa, Ojibwe, and Potawatomi Nations. Our programming is made possible by the Arts Work Fund, Walter Foundation, MacArthur Fund for Arts and Culture, the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation, Paul M. Angel Family Foundation, Gaylord and Dorothy Donnelly Foundation, Illinois Arts Council Agency, the Department of Cultural Affairs and Special Events, Innovation 80, the Lupo Family, Eric Rothstein and Gina Wamek, Athene Karras and Thomas Applegate, James Lupo, Jessica Wetmore, Hannah and George Stowe, and many generous individuals like you. I'm Max Spitz, and this, this is the Second, Second Story Podcast.